You're listening to the Coach's Journey Podcast. Exposing the struggles and celebrating the successes in the life of coaches who are action takers and creating authentic impact in today's world. Whether you're just starting out, expanding your reach, or exploding your impact, you're in the right place right now. Stay tuned and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Now, here are your hosts of the Coach's Journey Podcast. All right, what's up, Coaches Nation? So excited to be here for another podcast episode with you. Uh, so I'm Dr. Sherry Flewellen, co-host with Faisal and Son. We have an amazing guest for you guys here today. You are gonna just drip over everything that he says because this is so incredibly applicable to every single person who has a work life and particularly to us coaches because when we love what we do, we tend to get all in and sometimes we find that our boundaries in our work versus our personal life and all the different things that we're doing start to blur. And so Joe has become an expert on um, kind of those boundaries and has brought a lot of research to bear on what our week might optimally look like. So we're gonna dive deep into that. Um, but first, uh, let's talk about wins. And I want Joe to start because he has a really amazing win this week to share. Yeah. Thank you so much. My book Thursday is a new Friday dropped yesterday on yes! Tuesday, October 5th. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, I went to the local bookstore and picked up my copies there and was on local radio. I did all this other like big national stuff, but it, you know, when you're in your community uh, to give back, I was on the radio for an hour and a half with a friend of mine and uh, it was wonderful. It was just so fun. Went out to eat with two of my best friends and uh, just celebrated and did a bunch of podcasts yesterday. And then today have this and Bloomberg news after this and a few other things. Uh, so just so exciting. That's Congratulations. Incredible. That's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, Thank that you. is an amazing, amazing win. And I know a lot of coaches that are watching this and that we interact with would love to be authors at some point and are in the process of it. So I can't wait for this conversation. Oh, yeah. I am happy to pull back the curtain. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm not sure the publishing world wants me to do that, but uh, I'm happy to like, <laughs> pull back that curtain as much as I can. Perfect. Oh, we appreciate you doing that. All right, Faisal, what's the win for you this week? So it, it might seem like an uh, odd win, uh, but it, it goes back to when Joe asked me, like, how do you pronounce your name, which I appreciate that. Uh, so I went to drop off my daughter, who's five years old at the school, and their her teacher is like, how do you pronounce uh, Aliyah's name? Because we call her Aliyah, and she's like, that's not my name. <laughs> And we say Aliyah, and there's a subtle difference there, but they, they didn't catch it. And she's like, and the, the reason why it's a win for me is because that was very hard for me, like uh, coming to a new culture and everybody pronounced it in very odd ways, my name. And I didn't know how to even like correct that or even raise that up because I was too scared or should I even do that? But the fact that she's just naturally doing that without us even telling you that that's a huge win for me. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, for me, I would say one of my wins actually is is this right here right now. Um, I met Joe quite a few years ago. It's probably been eight years by now, maybe even a little bit longer. <clears throat> and I uh, I believe so much in collaboration and staying connected because um, we all can help each other. So I'm just excited for this opportunity to reconnect and to hear more about what you're doing. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're at the second slowdown school, I mean, like, it's incredible how long we've known each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So before we dive into the meat of this, Faisal, do you just want to talk a little bit about um, our sponsor? 
Yes. Um, so this uh, podcast is sponsored by Coaching Mastery Community. Both Sharon and I are members uh, of that community. And what we do in that community is help coaches uh, develop coaching skills or coaching mastery um, within their field and their coaches from different uh, modalities from around the world. And we also help them develop um, business mastery because business is just without that business, they can't sustain that message or the impact that they're creating within a very supportive community where we're always sharing resources, thoughts, perspectives, support, uh, and we collaborate to move our businesses forward. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. So on that note, uh, Thursday is the new Friday, how to work fewer hours, make more money and spend time doing what you want. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> I know that's a very common reaction. <laughs> right? Right. Sign me up. Yeah. It's such a tough sell. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Joe, can you um, share with us uh, I mean, as long as I've known you, even so, so you, so first of all, let's set some, let's set some context. Um, so you mentioned slowdown school. Um, you want to give a quick pitch of what slowdown school is? Yeah, well, I think slowdown school really represents kind of one of the big realizations of kind of who I am as a consultant and coach, and that. Uh, I was sick of going to conferences where you just felt burned out. You're running from session to session. It just didn't feel like anything I wanted to do. Uh, and so I remember I was thinking about, wouldn't it be great if I had a event that slowing down was the main purpose of it to then speed up. Uh, so Slowdown School emerged uh, with this model of for the first couple of days, you know, first I pick everybody up in a big yellow school bus at this small Northern Michigan airport. Uh, well, I mean, I don't pick them up like we have a bus driver, <laughs> but uh, so we, we then go out to the, uh, the beaches of Northern Michigan and stay on this campus that has a river that goes through it. There's an executive chef that she partners with local farmers and the salad bar, even they know like where the carrots come from. Uh, it's amazing. And for two days, we just go for hikes. We slow down. Uh, we play spike ball on the beach or skip stones. Uh, and then on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning, uh, we run full tilt towards the business. And so I walk people through how to sprint. Uh, we talk through the sprint types and kind of what that looks like, really taking the model of what eventually became Thursday is the new Friday, that when we slow down, the research shows that our brains are optimized to then absolutely kill it. And, and so it's great because I have this event, Slowdown School, but then I also have another event called Killing It Camp. And so the idea is that we're always going back and forth between using our brains to be most optimized to then go do our very best work in a shorter period of time. Awesome. Yeah. That, that was, is awesome. I love that. Yeah, that was totally my experience. I, I have very fond memories of spike ball on the beach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what can you, was there a moment when you realized, oh my gosh, we are, we're killing ourselves. We're not really being as productive. We're, we're working against our best self and our, our, our biggest vision by not slowing down. Like when did that aha moment happen? What did that look like? Yeah, I remember when I had my counseling private practice, it was just a side gig. I had four 1099s working for me and I was working maybe five hours a week on it. Uh, and I had the podcast going. So this would have been probably 2014 or so, 2013, somewhere in there. Um, so the podcast is going, uh, all of all of it's going well in regards to this new practice that continues to expand. And I still have my full-time 40-hour-a-week job and a little kid and another kid on the way. And I, I leave my new four-office suite. It's a corner office, view of the water. 
uh, I had run over there at lunchtime to just go do a quick counseling session. And I went back to the community college I worked at and went down the stairs to my basement office that had no windows. Uh, and it was a job I loved. I mean, the college paid me to go sailing with students in the summer to help them connect. It, it wasn't a bad gig to get paid to go sail. Uh, and I had tons of autonomy. My supervisor was amazing. Only when she really needed something did she kind of come down on us. And the rest of the time it was, I trust you to be a professional. So that made it even harder because I was going from a really good job that paid well and had a pension to what the potential could be. And to me, that central question of what, what could I actually do versus um, just continue to stay in something safe was that leading question for me. And so leaving that full-time job um, to say, I'm going to pursue lower hours, potentially higher income, but full autonomy within my business, that was the shift that I had to make. Uh, both my parents worked for the schools. My dad was a school psychologist. My mom was a school nurse. So I was always taught, you go to school, you get a lot of education, and then someday someone blesses you with a great job, um, which for a lot of people is true. And especially in that generation of the baby boomers was very true. And so to be able to then say, well, I'm going to challenge that. In 2015, I then had to really ask myself, what do I want to create in regards to my schedule now leaving this full-time job? Your just that little snippet reminds me, I work a ton with real estate investors and it reminds me of the rich dad, poor dad. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great book. Uh, amazing book. Yeah. The big, I honestly, the, the bigger pockets podcast is one of my like recent addictions with real estate investing and learning the Burr method and all that. Uh, I have two uh, Airbnbs. And so just learning to be better in the real estate investing side to just optimize it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's honestly my passion, but that's, oh, man. <laughs> that's for another time. <laughs> so what, what did that look like? Cause it, you, you made efforts, you know, you, you did some things, you tested out this idea, this theory on other practice owners and, and in, in these different venues, at what point you're like, Oh my gosh, I need to write a book on this. Yeah. You know, um, every year, uh, I really take the book, The One Thing, I've taken that seriously for years. So the idea of the book, The One Thing is what's the one thing that if you do that thing or achieve that thing, it's going to make everything else easier or, or not even like useful anymore. And, and so each year or two, I would say to myself, what's something I need to do that would really be that big step forward. So I go back and forth between having a very full plate. And when my plate is full and I don't have the energy or time, then I'm in kind of systems mode where I need to take things off of my plate, hire people, uh, take, make sure that I have the energy and time to actually move into a new project. Because just like what we we're talking about with slowing down, I then am not able to go into a new project if I have all my energy and time going into something else. So once that freedom happens, then I can look at what's that big next goal that I can take a risk on because everything else is going well. And so early on in my career, it was if I can just get some consulting clients that are twice what my counseling rate is, I think I was charging 150 a session, it was, hey, if I can charge 300 a session for consulting, that's a big step forward. Then the next year, it was mastermind groups. And you know, you were part of that cohort where it was if I can get cohorts of you know, six to eight people, you know, paying 500 bucks a month or so to meet a couple times and then do an event like slowdown school, like that's a big step forward. So then that year, I think I had six different mastermind groups going. Uh, and then the next year, it was was a membership community. Uh, and if I can have a few hundred people paying a hundred bucks a month, that's predictable ongoing income. And then in late 2018, it was, if I can write a book, have it traditionally published and be a New York Times bestselling author, that is going to open a lot of doors for me. So then I started that process in late 2018 uh, and then walked through that until right now in the midst of it. 
Yeah, what, what, what I love about this, uh, your journey is that what you're describing is what most coaches probably want to do, because they're all on that uh, influencer path. And, and I'm in that mastermind membership phase. And as I'm thinking about it, so next year is my goal for my book that I'm, I'm going to be writing. So it's really cool to see your journey uh, moving forward. Um, and so I'm just curious, you mentioned counseling, you mentioned consulting. Um, was there any uh, point where it took the, I know you did facilitation and mastermind. So was there the coaching piece in there uh, within your practices? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of the work, especially when I'm doing one-on-one -on -one consulting, even still uh, sometimes steps into coaching where there's that personal side um, that it's like, why are you not hitting these goals? What, why aren't you creating a schedule? W what's going on here outside of me just saying, here's what you should do. So I think that it does go back and forth within it where that, that individual person's making those decisions still. And, and there are some emotions that come out in it. Uh, we never get into kind of the counseling side. Uh, you know, if, if there's issues that pop up, it's like, go find a therapist, work with that person on that. Uh, I have retired my license, so I'm not going to do the counseling side, but it, it's getting in the way of your business goals. So go work on that. Okay. And the, can the consulting uh, piece, is that uh, much more business related? Yeah. So now kind of the two ends that I do is uh, with the membership community, next level practice, that's for people from the moment they want to start a counseling or coaching or psychology practice all the way until they're ready to make their first hire. And so we have a monthly uh, check-in that we call what's working, where I facilitate that, bring people together. Uh, then we have a ask the expert. Uh, so we bring in people like Pat Flynn, John Lee Dumas, uh, Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman, Lori Gottlieb, uh, really high-end people. We're talking with Dan Pink right now. Um, to come in and speak to the community for an hour. Uh, and so I facilitate that. I'm active in the Facebook group. We're switching over to Circle. Um, so that's one end of what I do with the consulting. And then the complete other side is people that are often exiting their practices or people that are just general business folks that want to launch something big. Um, so oftentimes it's people that already have an audience. Uh, they already have some, some good traction, but they're not sure how to get to that next level to double or triple their sales. And, and so usually those folks are already at, say, 200K and they want to hit a million through uh, their membership community or through their mastermind groups or uh, e-courses. And so we'll work on how do you have a multi-arm approach? So maybe it's either launching a podcast or optimizing a podcast. How do you get higher level of people to come on as guests to your podcast? Uh, how do you create that networking um, to get uh, kind of high ticket type of uh, interviews that you get to be on? Uh, when do you invest in PR versus kind of bootstrap it with your own team? And so it's really that kind of big ideas and going well beyond either counseling practice or a lot of these folks aren't even uh, in the counseling world anymore. Uh, I mean, this book has just opened up tons of doors. So like Nissan Infinity Canada brought me in to talk about mental health and the four day work week. Um, there may be some consulting that emerges as a result of that. That, that is awesome. I love that. It's so many amazing familiar names that, that you're bringing into your mastermind and uh, that I, I love the, the work that you're doing, especially with, especially with, I mean, at least in the coaching and influencer world, this is a challenge to keep moving the uh, business forward and expanding and optimizing and not <laughs> let it take up literally all your time. Because uh, as especially, I mean, most coaches I know, they got into this business. One of the primary reasons to actually have the time with their time freedom with their family, actually have them. A lot of them are location freedom based too, is that, that I want to, and a lot like real estate investors. Um, and, but what ends up happening as you get started is like, holy shoot, I, I need to be busy. I need to do this. And then you're constantly mm -hmm. working. And then at some point you realize, holy shoot, I'm just doing another job. <laughs> 
<laughs> which yeah. uh, like how did it turn into that all of a sudden and i've been on that path and i've had to re- question all that and 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 and, and kind of come full circle to like okay how how do my days look like now and and really optimize that and then that's not an easy process especially as entrepreneurs you know that when when friday or thursday whatever that day is you hit is like i still got a shit lot of stuff to do <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And I'm like, well, and I, I think what off. you're pointing to, well, I think what you're pointing to is the shift away from the industrialist model. Uh, you know, the, I, I love Amy Porterfield, but you know, she always pushes like, have your one core course that you're pushing. Um, and that works for some people that have one thing to teach, but for most of us that are highly trained and we're into, you know, emotional intelligence and all these things, we're moving into more of what we might call an evolutionary model. So the industrialists taught us that you create something, you plug it in, you've got your conveyor belt and it works. Uh, Whereas the evolutionary model, which I kind of described is that it's growing, adjusting and changing over time. So, you know, the practice of the practice that Sherry saw several years ago is completely different than what we have right now, because every year, we're asking our staff certain questions that help them grow and evolve. We're asking our audience questions to see how they can grow and evolve. And so we continue to expand our services from the moment someone says, hey, I want to start a counseling practice all the way to, you know, I'm leaving it. I'm doing something completely different to have things along that way. So even talking, the way I talk with our staff, we have a mantra called proceeding till apprehended. And so it's like, I want creativity to lead. I don't want to get in the way to like approve or sign off on something. And if something really crappy comes out, I'm going to call you on it and, and feedback is going to be a natural part of that loop. So then we can have more creativity emerge than uh, would happen if I had to approve or sign off on everything. Uh, and then there's three questions that I ask every single staff, at least annually, if not more frequently than that, it's more become just a part of the culture and conversation now. And that's first, what do you love doing right now that you just want to keep doing? Second, what are you doing right now that you hate that you want to take off of your plate? And third, where do you want to get some training to do something bigger than what you're doing right now? And so looking at Sam, one of my, um, one of my staff, she's now our chief marketing officer. She started out just doing design for me. And over the years, she's taken show notes off of her plate. She's you know, hired other people to help with the, the podcast. She's hired people to do more of the social media. She's got training in doing video editing. And then how do you actually market a YouTube channel? And so the marketing side of that. And so she's created the job that she wants and knows that if her interests change in the next year or two, she's again going to be able to shift and change. So I don't worry about losing her. She's having a baby right now. So she's taking a long break for a bit. So who knows how that's going to shake out. But, you know, she knows that she could create the job she wants, that she could go part time and just do the elements that she enjoys. And so over time, the organization changes and shifts and evolves in a way that's healthier for everyone and then healthier for the organization. So the word that comes to mind, and this is twice now that it came to mind as you were talking, Joe, is the word courage. Because you, you showed a lot of courage back when you were working with the community college and you're like, I got a sweet gig, but it doesn't fully align with what I feel like maybe I'm capable of. And so there was this jump in, in courage to, to take that leap of like, I'm going to quit and I'm going to walk into the unknown. And now even with what I envision even scarier, um, you know, having ran a you know, a million million plus dollar organization, hearing you say, oh, there's enough fluidity. It's just constantly changing. It's like people can do what they, I'm like, ah, (laughs) like that makes my heart patter a little quicker um, because that 
that would, I envision that would take a lot of courage for me to move into that mindset because change can be super scary when you're talking about managing and, and being in, um, you know, responsible for a lot of people and for delivering a lot of things. How does, you know, how does this, how does this land with you? <laughs> you know, I think, yes, it can come across initially as a lot of fluidity, like do whatever you want, but it's definitely not that. So, um, so let's take when Sam wanted to stop doing show notes. So she says, I don't, you know, I don't like doing show notes. Okay, great. She's then the one that hires who replaces her. Uh, she's the one that creates the training for that person on how to do show notes. She's the one that makes sure until she can fully hand that off, that the show notes are being done correctly. So if she doesn't like it that much and she knows this will be off my plate, she wants to train them as fast as possible. She wants to get the best quality person because if that falls through, where do those show notes go back on her plate? <laughs> and so, and so it becomes something where it reinforces that you need to do good training. You need to do a good hire. It's nothing that I really like, of course I'm responsible for it because I'm the business owner, but ultimately she in taking off her plate is going to be handing that off. So we are creating systems, checks and balances, making sure that we know, okay, what have we offered clients? So we've offered, so right now we manage and monitor 17 different podcasts and we're actively doing all of their show notes, all of their transcriptions, all of their sound engineering, all of their Instagram marketing, um, so much. And every single one of those shows has its own Trello board. Um, we have Sam R, we have two Sams at the top that neither will go by Samantha. So we have Sam R and Sam C. <laughs> So it used to be new Sam and old Sam, but, and then it was new Sam and vintage Sam. And then it was like, you know, I've been here for a long time. Do I have to go by new Sam still and like three years <laughs> in? So now they're just their last initials, but like Sam R, uh, she is now our chief podcast producer and she oversees um, all of the people that do sound engineering. So we have five people here in Michigan that are sound engineering students. So they have access to great sound engineering, but they're, they're going through college. They want internship hours in addition to just getting paid, you know, a little bit. And, and so we have that team. Um, she also oversees all the transcriptions, all of our different elements. So it is organized, but she also knows like, you know, Sam R had something happen in her family where she needed to go from 40 hours to 20 hours a week. Uh, or no, we don't do 40 hours. We do um, 35 hours a week. Um, so go from 35 hours a week um, down to 20 hours a week. So then she handed it off to Naranda, who had been under the other Sam. And, um, and that Naranda, after she was trained and we did some meetings as a team to say, okay, who's taking what elements from Sam R while she's taking a step back for her family? Uh, what does that look like? Who needs to check in? But then when fires happen, we need to put those out, but then talk about, well, what systems were in the way there? Why, why is Joe the linchpin for this? Like someone else should have those passwords to be able to solve this outside of Joe. So then it's a, a, an agile system that keeps getting smarter and smarter and people know that they have freedom within it um, until apprehended you know if i'm going to apprehend you <laughs> you are like the delegating ninja mm -hmm. <laughs> i love yeah, it I, I texted I, actually i didn't have time before this but i'm going to text my assistant to schedule a haircut for me for friday i just realized i need that and i'm like i i should not even like spend two minutes doing that i have interviews to go on <laughs> you, you get on the podcast you're like whoa my curls yeah. are a bit big yeah i know <laughs> so yeah when one of you goes on a, a rant in a couple minutes i'll just text her and you know get it done right now <laughs> <laughs> all right faisal that's your cue go on a rant <laughs> Well, uh, don't ask for that. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, the, uh, another thing I heard that was really profound, I really love how you separated the industrial model from the more the evolutionary model um, is that and in, in, like historically, it's really, really important to understand this because I mean that the way our parents, grandparents, they, they were taught was that like they were just developing the systems. They didn't have much room for like, do let me figure this out, figure that out. And and you uh, talked about uh, Daniel Pink. I think he talked about the the, the creative class more. Um, and and what's happened more and more that we've evolved as we've figured out some of those systems as like society has completely transformed in terms of interconnectivity and technology developing and all this stuff. We've completely shifted from that life. The problem is that the thoughts and perspectives and beliefs and models have stayed in our mind because, I mean, we watched our parents work. We watched our parents do the things that they didn't. We carried that with us. And and every time I talk to my clients, it's like it's like literally they're carrying that baggage with them and they don't realize it a lot of times. And then the evolutionary models actually, I think, more aligned with us as human beings because it's a much more dynamic model. I mean, if you just look at the human life, things are constantly changing. Like just, just take a parent, a business owner. There's, there's not gonna be a week that's gonna be the same. There's not even gonna be probably a couple of days that's gonna be very similar. You have to consistently uh, keep shifting and to uh, keep evolving and shifting and making these, these tweaks in your life and your schedule and your business to move forward. And it, it's, it's such a powerful idea, but more than ideas, like once you accept that, then change is not a problem because change is a part of your life. You just don't put yourself in a box of, this is how my life should look like versus what, what, if, what if I evolved? What if I adapted to this change? And I feel like this also connects with the slowing model that you talked about, which I is slowing down model which is really important for influencers, coaches, entrepreneurs, that how are you going to bring the creativity into your work if you're not slowing down, if you're doing the same thing over and over and over and you're backed up constantly? And so I'd love to hear, I mean, is that part of your book as well? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about your, like how you structured the book and maybe anything you want to want to. Yeah, do. no, I think what you're, you're, the first part of what you're talking about in regards to even just how recent this industrialist model is. Um, yeah, in 1926, Henry Ford started the 40 hour work week. And so you think about our grandparents, they were just getting born around that time. So they were the first generation kind of born into industrialists. Their parents in the late 1800s, early 1900s were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. It was a farmer's schedule, even if you weren't a farmer. So just imagine the tension between those two generations of just working all the time to then being told, oh, you get the 40 hour work week. Like we never think of calling that generation lazy, but could you imagine the, our great grandparents or great, great grandparents saying you're working 40 hours a week. What the hell? Like, I can't believe you. Like they would say that's, that's so lazy. Um, and so if we even then just fast forward and say our parents were the first generation raised by industrialists. So they didn't know what they were doing either. And so this thing, the 40 hour work week that feels so solid, so grounded in society is less than hundred years old. And so when I jumped into the book, I was really first saying, I just want to start with a blank canvas here. 
how do we even view time? Where did we get the 40 hour work week? And when I discovered it's less than hundred years old, I was like, oh, maybe this is a little bit shakier than I thought. Um, but then I, I started asking myself, where did we even get the week? And so we have to actually go back to the Babylonians. When the Babylonians looked up, they saw seven major celestial things that they cared about. There was the sun, the moon, earth, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. So they started the seven-day week. There's nothing in nature that points to the seven-day week. Months make relative sense around the moon cycle. A year absolutely makes sense because it's how long it takes us to go around the sun. A day makes sense, but there's nothing that points to a week in nature. Uh, the Romans actually had a 10-day week. The Egyptians had an eight-day week. So even this thing that we think is solid, the seven-day week, was just made up by the power brokers of Babylon. And so if we know that the week was made up, the 40-hour work week was made up, then we get to the pandemic and we see that people see things don't have to be this way. It undoes everything the industrialists had built. Uh, we don't have to commute to work. We don't have to even get out of our pajamas as long as we put a nice shirt up on top. You know, I mean, all these things that we said were, were essential to the work week and having the key performance indicator being your butt in the chair for 40 hours. That's why we're seeing the great resignation right now is because people are going back to work and realizing I'm working for an industrialist here. Like, I don't want this. This is not working anymore. They intuitively know there's a better way. And they know that the health outcomes, the mental health outcomes, the just enjoyment of life that was pre-pandemic is not the best that we can do. I love that. And, 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 and I really love that. Like, and, and, and you put a positive spin on the pandemic as well, because maybe this is, this is, this is a reminder for us to, hey, Let's pause and restructure some things that we had taken for granted, like like forty hour work, whatever. And and I, I love your uh, how you trace the concept of time. <laughs> time is a very very so. There's uh, I love um, Eckhart Tolle's concept on this, where he talks about time. It's like time, the way that we measure it in terms of minutes, hours. That's not even the biggest problem. The problem is the psychological time, the thing that we have in our head. We're always concerned about time. And the reality is that it's not the time that's the problem. It's how we're structuring and strategizing what we're thinking about it that's creating the biggest problem. And, and just like our concepts are kind of set up for us. So we kind of align ourselves to that concept. So we box ourselves within it. So I really love that you've, you've looked in, in, into that stuff. Now, I'm, I'm curious, and I want to go towards because what we're talking about is the human life. I mean, yes, there's entrepreneurship here. There's coaching in here. But at the end of the day, we're creating a lifestyle uh, for me and uh, for my lifestyle, my family matters. I want to spend time with them. I want them to have my kids to have the memories. Uh, the last thing I want is them thinking that I'm always in the office. <laughs> and uh, the, they do know that I, I do. Even my two-year-old now says, oh, you're coaching. <laughs> I don't know how she knows coaching. She already knows. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so how one part is okay figure out the systems and all the stuff that you talked about when it, within your business so here's the part that's hard for entrepreneurs that i've worked with real estate investors i've worked with coaches the part that's really um difficult for them even if they have free time there's kind of this discomfort what the hell do i do with the free time and then we revert back to what we started to begin with because there is something probably left over that, that we're not dealing with. And Tim Ferriss, I think, addresses this quite a bit too in the four-hour work week. So what are your thoughts about that? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there's a whole section I talk about the overvalue of work and the undervalue of fun. Um, and I give all these suggestions of things that you can try uh, and experiment with during that extra free time. Uh, because the big shift, I would say, from the industrialists to this evolutionary model is whether it's in your free time or in your business, to have an approach where you're experimenting and getting smarter over time, um, that you're evolving in your own ways. And so say you have Friday off uh, and you, you decide I'm going to do this for a while. It's probably going to mean that you first have to have some hard and soft boundaries because most entrepreneurs, um, if left to their own devices, will just work more. And so to set some very hard boundaries. So, for example, um, if I have someone that wants to do consulting with me uh, and they can only meet on Friday, I will never do that. I will never take a long term person there. But in the middle of a media blitz like this, uh, if there's an occasional big podcast that says, honestly, we only record on Fridays, or there's this TV show coming up, um, they're only recording on Fridays. So I'm not going to say no to that. That's a soft boundary. It's an aspiration. Or if my website's on, on fire on a Friday, I'm not going to say to Jess, my director of detail, sorry, let it burn till Monday. Uh, we're going to wor work on it. We're going to put it out and then learn why on Monday, I was the only person that could solve that problem. And then we'll hopefully do some preventative things around that. And, and so as entrepreneurs, I, I think that it's important to just notice that discomfort when we have time outside of work, that we've, we've overvalued work. So what does that mean? We probably have to actually insert things into our schedule that we intentionally say we want to do. So for example, every Wednesday night, I'm part of an improv troupe. Um, that's almost non-negotiable outside of a media blitz. So tonight, which today's Wednesday, while when we're recording this, um, I have a big media thing that it just wasn't something I was going to pass up. Um, but that was an intentional decision, not a reaction. Uh, but that improv, I laugh harder for that hour and a half every single week. I barely need to do ab crunches anymore because I just laugh so hard. <laughs> so so there's things like that. There, I've, I've taken up watercolor painting. I, I've gone back to playing guitar and I'm trying to learn November Rain, uh, the Guns N' Roses song on the piano and just finding those things um, that just light you up in a new way. Uh, finding what works for you. So for me, a daily walk to walk at least three miles a day, my back that I hurt and had to have surgery on when I was 19, uh, like feels so much better if I just walk every day. If I have my standing desk instead of seated, I feel better. So finding those things that just help our bodies feel better. Um, and then to say, how do I keep trying new things during that free time? That's when you start to find a rhythm where it feels abnormal to work so much. And you don't have to even like have those boundaries anymore because it's intuitive. Mm. So we're conditioning our brains to interpret some of these situations and, and boundaries in a different way, which, which I love. Um, how are you, you know, and the folks that you've worked with, how long does that process take for somebody to be like, you know, to, to really like get it and to, to live it out rather than just kind of getting a lip service and then coming back next week and being like, I'm so frustrated. My life is still chaos or it's all about work. Yeah, I would say typically we want to do a two to three month experiment when we're first doing a four day work week. Uh, that gives you enough time in both your business and in your personal life to really experience some ups and downs because you don't want to do a two week or a, a one month experiment and then have a great month or a terrible month and then say, oh, I, I can't do the four day work week because of this. So you want to usually do at least two months. I would say no more than three 
And then when you enter into that, the first conversation or decisions you want to make is what are those hard and soft boundaries? And so um, I'm not working on Friday. Does that mean I don't check any email? Does that mean staff don't text me? Or does that mean I'm going to have a little bit of looseness here? Um, what are some things that you can insert into your calendar on a Friday uh, that's going to just set you up to have an amazing weekend? You know, maybe it's you're going to get some grocery shopping done. Maybe it's going to be that you blitz the house so it looks clean when your kids get home. You're like, whoa, like we don't have to do anything. I, I get my laundry done. Or maybe you have a laundry service that does it finding something um, to just make you feel like I am adding something to my family and my life by this Friday um, and, and inserting those things into our schedules. Uh, so then after you've decided those sorts of things, uh, you want to look at how you're going to measure success. So what are your KPIs, your key performance indicators that you already judge yourself on? And so for me, it might be, you know, amount of money coming into practice to the practice. It might be, um, you know, staff satisfaction. It might be a number of different things. How are you going to judge yourself on a weekly basis as to how you're doing? And then each week uh, on Monday or whatever day you start, you want to reflect back on the previous week and look at how'd you do on those boundaries? You know, were there things that broke? Were there things that went well? How do you just from a kind of qualitative standpoint, how do you feel about that compared to past weeks uh, when you were going five days a week? Do you just feel happier? Do you feel more connected to your partner? Do you feel like you were a better parent because you had an extra day off? And so after you look at your boundaries, then looking at those KPIs. So what's the hard data? Like, was money up? Like, did you miss some phone calls or emails that were important? What's the reality there? And then saying, what are the one or two things I need to add to my schedule this week that are going to help that KPI be a little bit higher next week? And so you're saying, I'm going to hold myself accountable to this and get more done in a shorter period of time. Uh, the last part is making sure that when you're working whatever hours you plan to work, that you are fully working during that time. This is every minute in that time that you should be working, that you dink around and you're not as effective as you could be, is a minute you're stealing from your family, you're stealing from your spouse, you're stealing from yourself. You could be meditating or hiking. And so really fully showing up and killing it during that time is the other side of this. It's not just slow down and then just like bounce around when you work. It's, you know, get stuff done. Use, use the neuroscience that's in the book to help you actually have some techniques to get more done in a shorter period of time. I'm sold. Love that. I, I, I'm ready to shut this down and for me to recalibrate my calendar and put some soft and, and hard boundaries in this. This is exciting. I literally was having a conversation yesterday <clears throat> with somebody about their calendar and time blocking and trying to kind of help them re-envision things and so super timely information um even in my let me life. let me talk a little bit about time blocking and, and yeah. why it often doesn't work for people so yeah. the the emerging research is that um time blocking sprinting does work time typically expands or i'm sorry work expands to the time given that's parkinson's law um yeah. but they're discovering that there's actually sprint types so similar to personality types if you're an Enneagram three achiever and someone's just like, oh, let me give you some hugs and you feel good about yourself. You're like, no, tell me what to do. Uh, and so your, your personality type informs how you show up for business, but also your sprint type actually informs that as well. And, and so um, what the research is showing is that there's kind of two types of sprinters. So a time block sprinter is your typical kind of batcher. So you would do usually a minimum of four hours of one particular task broken up into 20 to 30 minute segments with at least a one minute break where you stand up. So the University of Illinois found that just a one minute break can completely eliminate vigilance decrement. Vigilance, how well you pay attention to something, decrement meaning going down over time. So in boring tasks that you maybe don't wanna do, a one minute break every 20 minutes will totally reset your brain. So a time block sprinter, someone that does the same type of thing for that period of time. 
Whereas a task switch sprinter is a person that needs variety. And this is where often people feel guilty. Like I'm not a good batcher. I'm not a good sprinter. No, you just naturally need some variety, but we're not multitasking. We're not just bouncing around. We're intentional about that 20 to 30 minute sprint saying, okay, I am going to kill it on email right now. I'm going to figure out the top level emails I need to respond to. I'm going to respond to those. I'm going to get it done. And in 20 minutes, I want to get through everything and be back down to inbox zero. And then the next 20 minutes, maybe it's, Hey, I have this awesome blog post idea. I'm going to whiteboard it. I'm going to get all the main points. I'm going to do as much research as I can. Boom, stop timer. Then it's okay. I'm going to show up for a podcast interview. So having that variety then makes you a more effective sprinter. So that's one part of the sprint types. The other part is when you do it. And so an automated sprinter is someone that puts it in their calendar and it's on repeat. So for me, I wrote Thursday is the new Friday every Thursday from April, 2020 until September, 2020. And so every Thursday, just tearing it up on repeat. My assistant knew she couldn't schedule anything there. It was blocked out. No one could get into my calendar. I didn't even look at my calendar. So if someone got in there, I know showed on them. So just making <laughs> sure that that was just, I'm in writing mode. Whereas there's other people like Dr. Jeremy Sharp from the Testing Psychologist podcast, he's an intensive sprinter. So that kind of sprinter needs to go away, either go to an Airbnb or a hotel or a friend's house. You need to just get away from all of the stress of your life. For me, that sounds like too much planning to put together a, a mini trip. If I go on vacation, I want to go on vacation. I don't want to go work on a podcast. But other people like Dr. Jeremy Sharp, he needs to get away to do that, but he then brings a ton of different kinds of work. So he sketches out his media calendar for the year. He records a bunch of podcasts. He works on his, his private practice. And so he's a task switcher within it. And so when you discover that, you know, Dr. Jeremy Sharp, he goes away and you know, two to three times a year, he's doing these things. So then in his daily life, he doesn't have to worry about them. Whereas I, I just want that regular regularity and I want to do just one thing at a time. So it then that sprint type really allows you to unlock in a shorter period of time, all of that full potential. So how does the idea and the research around deep work and the amount of time it takes for us to kind of really settle into a task to start to really get good and to, to, to access the part of our brain that's that's powerful and that how, do, how does that fit into kind of more yeah. of the short term? Yeah, so a lot of what the research is showing now, we, we've heard it takes 26 minutes to refocus or things like that. There's different numbers that are thrown around, uh, but there's many ways to jump back into a flow state that takes very little time at all. So for example, on Thursdays when I was writing the book, um, I did some things and I write, it's interesting. I was writing about writing the book uh, and sharing, here's the neuroscience and here's how I'm applying it right now in this situation. So I would wake up on Thursdays. I would never check my phone. There would be, I wouldn't look at texts. I wouldn't look at news. I wouldn't look at email. I protected my brain. Uh, I then had the same meal every Thursday. Uh, and so I would start with green tea and then had a healthy meal and then had my coffee and my green smoothie all ready for the morning. So I didn't have to leave my office unless I wanted to. I then set up a different environment within my office. And this is pretty key if we're talking flow state. And so I have certain lighting when I'm doing interviews. Uh, even if I'm doing an audio only interview uh, where maybe it's on the phone, I could be anywhere in my house, but I still come right here. I put on the same shirt for every interview because I love this shirt. I have two of them and make sure they're <laughs> always clean. And so it's like, I, I'm training my brain to be in interview mode right now. Whereas when I was in writing mode, uh, there was different lighting. I have a lamp that I turn on instead of the overhead lights. I move my chair from the corner it's in right now to a different part of the office. Um, I had Bose noise canceling headphones uh, that I only wore 
when I was writing. And then I had a specific playlist that I played only when I was writing. And so by doing that, I'm creating an environment where my brain feels safe. And it says, oh, I know this environment. This is writing mode. Like, let's do this. And then the last part of it is I always ended my Thursday with sketching out the next chapter I'd be working on on the whiteboard. So I would take it off of Trello where I had brainstormed all the main kind of research, case studies, stories, points. Um, and I would take that and I would just put it all up on the whiteboard. And I would start to ask questions that I thought, well, I don't, I don't really know what the answer to this is. So like the curiosity chapter, I just put up there, curiosity killed the cat. Where the heck did that come from? Well, there was a cat that got stuck in a chimney in 1916 and the Washington Post had it on the front page. So, uh, and unfortunately the cat died. So, so to have those things that I put up on the whiteboard to then let my brain work on subconsciously throughout the week. So on Thursday, I'm not just showing up to a blank screen saying, I got to write or do some writing exercises to get into flow state. I'm ready to go from that moment that I step into that setting. Yeah. I and, love that. Yeah, uh, it's and- amazing. I, I actually, a lot of the things that you're saying, I've, without the research, I've intuitively applied them, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Then uh, it's kind of uh, solidifying some things that I've, I've been doing. I'm, I'm just, um, I, I love that for, phrase. Did you say dink around? Yeah. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard that. <laughs> I'm in Canada, so I don't know if they use it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else uses it. I think it's like, I'm like a 1920s, like, don't go dink around over there, kids. <laughs> totally reminded that. me of my grandparents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I, I want to share a couple of things around that. So last year, um, uh, I went from probably working around, I think, if, on ballpark 50 to 55 hours per week to now I'm, and I had a conversation with one of my uh, close relatives I, I told him I'm at about 36, 37 hours. Um, um, and that, that includes my morning routine and all, all the other stuff that I do for myself, not just work. So, and it's interesting because uh, when the new year, around the new year hit, I was like, you know what? I'm making a decision that I'm going to spend time this time with my family and, and that's it. And it was challenging because initially it's very tempting to is like, okay, well, uh, maybe I can move a little bit that, that soft boundary, hard boundary into the next block time. Uh, but the interesting thing is if you're looking at your calendar, you're saying, okay, this is done and you've made a decision, you will, you will find a way to get the work done as long as you don't dink around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then interesting thing happened. And recently my daughter started uh, sharing knows that she started school and now I, uh, I'm dropping her off I'm getting her ready in the morning and dropping her off because my wife is with our youngest daughter she she barely sleeps so uh, <laughs> the, the, so I'm getting her ready in the morning and taking her to school that takes about two hours and this, that was right before this so with that now I'm cutting out more hours I'm like okay you know what let me experiment with this can I do this that's what kind of cut it down to kind of 36 hours which initially I like even four years ago when I started I want to get to about 30 hours of work 30 35 hours but the interesting thing is the 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 less time I have to work the more efficient I've gotten <laughs> it's the most yeah. like and I still don't know how I'm able to do this but the fact that it's there and I'm following that for the most part, it just happens. And in my block time, literally, I don't have Fridays off yet, which you're giving me a lot of motivation on that. I'm, I'm done quarter of the day. So that when, when the time hits, it says on my calendar, work done, family time. I'm off. Yeah. I don't care how, how long the check, checklists are, I'm done for the day, unless there are some fires, like you said, 
that I need to put out. So it's really, and the thing that I wanted to highlight is that every time I've made a decision and I've followed through with it, you find a way to make it make it work as long as it's important. And so my my and and, and here's here's my question. This is an I wonder what your take is on this. So for me with my clients, the reason why I've gone this efficient is not just with the decision that I made. There was a vision around that. So my vision spans back like five, six years that this is what I wanted. And that vision helped me kind of move towards this. Obviously there was strategic goal setting towards there. And then there was my block time. So it didn't start with block time tool. It started with a vision and it started with a plan to move closer towards that. And then the tool was helpful. And a lot of us have this misconception. If I keep getting better and better tools, I'll, I'll do just fine. It's like your phone is an amazing tool, but what do you use most? What do most people use it for? Uh, so like, what are your thoughts around like entrepreneurs having that vision and making sure that like their tools and the strategies align with that? Yeah, I, I love kind of your sharing of that. Uh, you know, one of the things that really comes to mind is, so I talk about three internal inclinations that top performers have uh, within uh, kind of the research. And so curiosity an outsider perspective and an ability to move on it. And so what you're talking about as you shrink your schedule is that ability to move on it. Uh, and so if we think about a spectrum, <clears throat> we always have a tension between accuracy and speed. Uh, so on one side, we have accuracy. Like there's times in life, I want someone to be accurate. Like if I go in for surgery, I want my doctor, I want her to take as much time as she needs to be able to do the surgery. Uh, I want my airline pilot to be as accurate as they need so that I safely like get to my destination. But most of what we do, speed is going to trump accuracy every time. And so by giving yourself less time, you're actually not going to be able to be paralyzed by perfection as much. You're just going to move through it because you're like, I, I don't have time to get paralyzed by perfection. I just need to get this stuff done. The other factor that we see is that when you shrink the amount of time you're working on something, you know, are you going to do the best 10 tasks you need to do or the worst 10 tasks? You're naturally and intuitively going to do the best 10. You're going to do that top level stuff. If there's a client that owes you 10 grand, you're going to send them that invoice to make sure you get paid. Uh, if there's a new client that wants to give you 10 grand, you're going to send them an email and say, here's the link to pay. Uh, let's get scheduled. Uh, you're not going to be taking out the trash and vacuuming your office. Uh, and so over time, you start to do that best and best work, but then the best part about it, but what's hard for us is we're dropping the ball on all, all those tasks we shouldn't have been doing in the first place. And so maybe the garbage in your office does start to overflow. Maybe, you know, the carpet doesn't get vacuumed. Um, maybe you aren't returning every single email within 24 hours. That's revealing some very important things to you because maybe you need a director of details that's going to go through your emails and check them for you and star just the top level ones. Maybe you need to hire someone to come in once a week, take out the trash and vacuum your carpet because you're not going to spend your time doing these things that aren't super high level. But then what happens when you're only doing the high level stuff and preserving that energy for yourself, your family, and your high level types of things is you do better and better work with those high level things that you've given yourself a limited amount of time. So then it's a self-perpetuating cycle where that slow down, kill it, slow down, kill it just helps you do better and better work over time. Best money spent is our maids that come in twice a week. Oh my gosh. Hands down. Yeah. I outsource so much. I mean, I have a cleaning person that comes. I'm a single dad raising my kids pretty much on my own. Um, so I have groceries delivered. I, I don't want to spend, you know, four hours on the weekend hauling my daughters, you know, to go get groceries. I have the neighbor kid mow my lawn. Oh, and yes, these are positions of privilege, but when you get to a certain place in your business, 
you want to start asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? Whether it's in your yeah. personal life or it's in, in your business, there's so many things that you should be outsourcing to do that highest level thinking. Yeah. All I have to say, it takes me longer to find all the food in the grocery website than it does for me just to stink and do it. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't they have a, uh, previous order? Uh, I probably haven't been patient enough to create <laughs> the full order, but maybe I'll have to do that. Like figure out what are those things every week? That oh we buy. yeah. Mine my says, life. mine says like, do you want more avocados? Yes. <laughs> do you want more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you want more kale? Yes. I want everything. <laughs> yes. I I repeat. Just on okay. repeat. <laughs> okay, I might have I might have to take the time to get that first initial order right, and then there you go. Thank you. Yeah. So, so you, you can do it, Sherry. Curious. I believe in you. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, definitely you can. So um, I'm curious now how so and and we know this as as you start as an entrepreneur, whatever the field is, whether it's in coaching or any other business. Initially, you're doing pretty much everything. <laughs> And then, and, and that works because you have to learn all that stuff. And, and then you get to a point where you're kind of, you need to delegate all this stuff and need to focus on those high level things that you're talking about. So how, how do, when do entrepreneurs make that decision? Because the, the tendency might be is to keep delaying that versus making that decision. And, and like, when, how do you think through that? Yeah. I mean, if someone's starting from scratch and doesn't have really any sort of budget, then time is on your side to learn all those yeah. things. Um, if you do have some cash flow, so maybe you have a partner that has a full-time job, or maybe you have some savings or you have another business uh, and you're starting this as a side gig. When I see people grow the fastest, it's when they start to figure out those key things that they should be doing from the beginning and outsource as much as they can as soon as possible. So even the idea that we have to learn everything, I, I don't have to learn coding. I don't have to learn SEO. I don't like I can, I could, but what is the purpose of doing that when I can hire my friend, Jessica, who has a whole company that does SEO, like, why wouldn't I just spend that money to have her company just come in and do SEO for me? Um, because then that's going to be four hours a month that I save. And then to have her company directly talk to my copywriter instead of to me about writing high ranking SEO articles. And so I think sometimes we delay and we put on those hats for too long. Uh, I would say if you're at the like 30 to $50,000 mark in regards to uh, like your basic expenses are covered for your life, uh, you really should be reinvesting as soon as you can to build out that team so that you can keep doing the high level things. And honestly, coaching, working with people like the two of you, uh, why recreate the wheel? Like don't start from scratch. There's people that it's the best spent money to do consulting. I remember when I hired Jamie Masters, um, it was when I had sold the very first slowdown school ticket to Dr. Jeremy Sharp. And he was the only one that had bought a ticket. And I had done this whole podcast series. I had Jay Papazan from The One Thing. I had Lewis Howes. I had all these people. It was this big thing. Slow down school. Sold one ticket. And I'm like, what the heck is happening here? I feel um, the pain. I totally get oh. what you're saying. <laughs> so I hired Jamie Masters from The Eventual Millionaire. Um, and I still remember she was $2,000 an hour. And um, we met for, I think, 10 hours. And it was the most money I had ever spent on anything within the business at that time. Uh, and then she talked to me and she said, so how'd you sell this first ticket? And I said, well, I texted Jeremy and jumped on a phone call and we just talked about it. She's like, how many phone calls have you done? I'm like Z Z only Jeremy. She's like, <laughs> she's like, how many tickets have you sold? Only Jeremy. Why don't you jump on phone calls? And so I sent one email to my list and said, 
maybe you're on the fence about uh, slowdown school. Uh, I'd love to jump on, you know, a phone call with you. I'm not going to hard sell you. I'm just going to answer your questions about slowdown school. Uh, and within two weeks, I sold 12 tickets. Like these were 2000, no, $3,000 a piece sold 12 tickets. And then she said, isn't it a pain in the butt to keep selling slowdown school tickets? And I said, it is. She's like, next year, you probably don't want to do that, do you? And I said, no. And she said, just include it in the mastermind group as part of the payment. And then you'll have all these people that are in a mastermind that already like each other. And they all just come to slowdown school. And anyone that buys a ticket is going to be like, why am I not in a mastermind group? So I included it <laughs> in the mastermind group. So it's, it's so simple, but I was just too close to the issue to be able to figure it out myself. And having that consultant or coach they can walk you through that and analyze your business external of you. I mean, to me, that's, that's the best use of my money kind of leveling up uh, to really get to that next level. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those I mean, at the end, I'm like, I, spent, I know I spent 20 grand to say, get on a phone call and include it in the mastermind group. Yep. But when I trace back how much money that 20 grand made me, I mean, it's probably $400,000 at this point. Um, so, I mean, that's a great ROI. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's, the, I, I feel like, I think co coaches understand this. A lot of influencers understand this. I mean, they've done so much work on, on themselves and, and they've invested in themselves, but sometimes kind of, we, we lose, lose sight of that, that, that investment in ourselves probably gives in our business. That's an extension of us in a sense that gives us probably the biggest ROI that, that we can, we can, we can think of and, and holding on to money. I, 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 it doesn't do anything <laughs> unless that's, unless you're using it for something purposeful there that's sitting there and it's not being reinvested in something important. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I love that story and I love that uh, concept around that is to think about reinvesting that in yourself or in your business. Uh, it's really, yeah. uh, powerful to move forward in the investing world. I think Grant Cardone, love him, hate him. He's got a lot of cool stuff to say, interesting perspectives, but he's constantly talking about, you got to keep your money moving. If your money's not moving, it's not doing anything for you. So a hundred percent believe in that, uh, and the reinvesting in that, uh, Joe, I would love to get some wisdom from you because there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that are like, oh, I've been doing this thing. I've got all this information. I'm an expert in this area. I'm doing a podcast. I'm doing, you know, they're, they're getting it out, but they've got this desire and burning um, calling to write a book. But they're like, I have no earthly idea how to lean into that and what to do. Like maybe they can write the book but they're not even sure how to get, make people aware of it. What, yeah. what kind of help, you know, do you have based on your own process? Yeah, I would start with that. If you're looking to get traditionally published, even with a small publisher, the biggest thing they want is they want to buy your audience. And so if you don't have an audience, if you have a podcast that only 200 people listen to, you've got to put all your effort into just building an audience. And this is true if you're going to self-publish too. If you're going to self-publish, unless you're writing a book just to make it look like you're smart or to just like kind of have something out there, if you actually want to sell books, you need to have an audience first. And so I would say most people that want to write a book are very excited about having their name on a book. Uh, if that's the case, then just write one on Amazon so your name's on it and get that ego boost. To me, that's less important than actually like changing and shaping the world and getting this book into other people's hands. So audience building is number one. Um, I would say really being clear about your specialty also. And, and so a lot of the people that I think you would describe 
they're doing all these different things, but it's like, what's the unified thing here? Um, so for me, it's for a really long time, been supporting clinicians that own private practices. So in writing this book, this book, I couldn't just ignore that audience, but I also needed to say, well, how does this expand beyond that audience too? So I wanted to find that sweet spot of it being very practical for my current audience where they really wanted to buy it while also opening doors to a different audience. Uh, and so finding that kind of way of thinking is really important as well. So assuming you have a decent audience you've built up, I'd say from an email list standpoint, you probably want to have a minimum of 5,000 people on your email list, uh, ideally at least 10,000 for them, for a, a larger publisher to even really entertain talking with you. You probably want your podcast to get at least 20,000 listens per month or so. Um, you want to be able to sell on day one, week one, at least 5,000 books if you want to shot at any of the um, like best-selling lists. So USA Today, um, Wall Street Journal, those ones are typically somewhere in the uh, four to 6,000 books in that first week. Um, New York Times usually is at least 10,000 in that first week. Um, and you got to be prepared to also do the media blitz. You know, I've done over 200 media appearances in the lead up to this book. Um, so writing articles for Harvard Business Review which they are very good at editing. And we probably did 10 rounds of editing. I mean, it's freaking Harvard. Um, I felt like I was doing a dissertation um, and you know, that's just part of it. And so being able to put in the time to free up that space to do that level of blitz. So first steps, building an audience, building that specialty. Then I would say what we're looking at is really shopping around for a good agent. And so um, if you have a podcast, the best thing to do is to ask every author that you talk to say, here's my idea for the book. Uh, here's uh, my basic proposal of what I'm thinking it's going to be about. Here's the type of books that it would sit next to. Cause these are all questions every agent's going to ask you. They want to know where it's going to sit. They want to be able to visualize it. So for me to say that this would sit right next to story brand and uh, the four hour work week. Okay. They can picture that book. Um, so then you're going to shop around for agents. Once you get an agent, they're going to talk with you about whether or not you should work with a writing coach to put together the proposal. The proposal is typically 20 pages long, outlining chapter by chapter exactly what you're going to write. So this is actually the hardest part of the book writing process because you're actually kind of sketching out the book really in depth. Um, then once that proposal is done and it has where it's going to sit through, uh, like what it's going to sit next to. You want to be able to get quotes from people that say, oh my gosh, this person should write this book. So if you don't have connections to people bigger than yourself, you should do that now. <laughs> so for me to be able to go to Julie Schwartz Gottman, Rob Bell, Dan Pink, other people that I've met through the podcast, I can then go back to them and say, hey, you know, you encouraged me to write a book. I'm writing that book. Would you give me a line about, we, I can't wait for Joe Sanok to write a book. So to get people that are big, like Rob Bell and Julie and Dan, as quotes within that proposal, that makes publishers go, holy cow, this guy's well connected. Um, even if those are kind of more ancillary connections, then you shop the, that around and you get hopefully um, some bids on it. And uh, then you sign the contract and you're off and running. What has been one of the most unexpected things in this whole process with writing the book and getting it published and then going through this media blitz? What is something you're like, oh my gosh, I totally didn't see that coming. No, I think it really, it was, um, I had hoped for it to open doors to people that I really respected. So John Lee Dumas, Pat Flynn, um, people like that. Um, I had no idea I would actually have Pat Flynn call me a friend, like by the end of this. I mean, I was just on smart passive income. Um, and like, that was a dream. That was the first podcast I listened to when I started my business journey. Uh, and so I think it was one of those things I had hoped for, but felt like such a pipe dream. Um, uh, 
you know, I was at podcast movement and hung out with JLD and Kate probably four or five times and till like four in the morning one night and like got to know them as people, uh, which when they're, when you're at that level, like you're protective of who you let in. Um, and so, and there's a lot of, it was weird to watch all the like fanboys and fangirls that like, you can see why they don't really want to talk to people. Um, but that side of it just is so interesting to learn, um, to just see how do you create authentic relationships with influencers where really you're starting from, you know, a place of just authenticity and getting to know them as people and finding the things you connect on that really have nothing to do with business. That's been probably the most unexpected and exciting thing. What is some of the own person, your own personal growth um, and mindset shift that you've had to, to make as you've gotten to get to know some of these people? Um, you know, some people label it kind of that, um, uh, oh, I just lost the word. Imposter syndrome. Yes, imposter syndrome and all of that sort of thing. You know, that that just, yeah. you know, the fear and how have you worked through that in your own in your own personal development? Yeah, I think I'm really glad I didn't get this book deal like three or four years ago um, because I think that I had to go through some personal things um, to just like help me be more raw and even more authentic and grounded. Uh, so for the last year, I've had a really strong meditation practice and, you know, been done a lot of just things for my own just physical health uh, that to me just helped me be just fine with who I am, whether or not I have success. And so I think that was just such a good kind of tilling of the soil so that when this happened, um, it wasn't ego driven. Like people can see that if it's like, look at me, look at me. Like, of course you want to share the wins. You want to share the like, holy crap, I'm in Harvard business review. Like that's exciting. And it's not like I have to have that to feel good about myself anymore. Um, I don't know that I ever had it fully, but I think that just that idea of first being grounded, but then in those moments to say like, I'm enough. Uh, I was hanging out with Michael Steltzner, who is one of the like top, you know, I mean, he's been around forever. He started the, the new media expo and all these other things. Um, I've known him like online for years. And I met him at this like private party that JLD invited me to. And I was super nervous at first, but then like he had brought his like 20 year old daughter with him and she's super into star Wars. And I'm like, Hey, I have two daughters and we're into star Wars. Like, what should I know about raising daughters? Cause it seems like the two of you have a good relationship. And I talked to them for like an hour about what it's like to have a dad, what it's like to raise daughters. And we just connected on that. And to realize really like we're therapy, I'm a therapist. And so to carry a conversation is not very difficult. That that's all you have to do in life is just carry a conversation. There's a lot of super awkward people out there that are happy that you're a therapist that will talk to them. Yeah. I, I, I love that, that piece on authenticity. I think it's, it's in, and I personally feel like the coaching world, the consulting world, I, I don't think they work very well without that authenticity piece without that authentic connection with people. And, and I also love what you mentioned around, like you described the abundance mindset very powerfully without even mentioning the word, uh, which is really amazing that you have to be grounded in yourself. You, 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 once you are at a stage where you're at peace with yourself and you don't need to do something to prove yourself, mm -hmm. that is the place to start with. That is the place to do things because then it's not about you. It's about your impact. It's about your service. It's about what you're putting out. And it's about the fun that you're going to have in the process. It's about the whole growth and curiosity, which is really, really powerful. And, and um, I, I want to comment a little bit on the, on the connection side with people. Like I've been to all these real estate conferences and uh, real estate investors, um, when they're trying to connect with somebody, especially people who are way ahead of them, 
their tendency, they, they get awkward. Their tendency is to go talk to them and they don't want to talk to them because their focus is the whole business piece and how am I going to move here? But they never take the time. Hey, what if I just got to know this person as a human being? Yeah. Yeah. Put away the roles, put away the status, put away everything. What if I just got to know this person? And that is a hard thing to do unless you're grounded yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think also from the investment side, if you want to be seen as an equal with some of those people, um, not that you just have to pay them, but to, to recognize the work they've put in. And so if they have a new book coming out to buy 50 copies or hundred copies and send it to your audience and then bring them in to talk, uh, like that's how these relationships started was, um, with Pat, I said, you know, you have this amazing book, super fans. I'd love to buy hundred copies and send it out to my next level practice people. And then have you just come in for an hour. And so then I met his, his director of details, or I guess that's not her title. That's my title for my person, but her name is Jess also, um, his like main admin person. And she did this whole interview with me just to, she was a gatekeeper. Uh, and so going through that process and saying, yeah, we're, I'm going to pay for my audience to read your book. Uh, that makes me stand out differently than just like, Hey man, will you come talk on my zoom call for free? And like this dude makes you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in passive income. He doesn't need to come help Joe Santa. That is a totally one-sided ask. Um, and not that you always have to pay to play, but it's at least showing I respect this person enough that I'm going to buy a bunch of their books or I'm going to pay them, you know, $1,000 for that hour to come talk to my community. Because think about the value of me having video of Pat Flynn, John Lee Dumas, Julie Schwartz, got all these big names. Like if I just didn't pay them and said, will you come talk? They'd probably say no. And so to be able to say, I'm going to reinvest and saying, you know, you've worked really hard to be at this level and, and I'm happy to pay you for, you know, an hour of your time and you don't have to prep anything. It's just a Q and a, um, and so a lot of these people then see, okay, Joe's playing at the same level or maybe a little less than, but at least he's not just one of those freeloaders. And so I do think that to be able to think through, like, how do I show somebody that I want to become connected with that I'm, I'm willing to play at their level or at least attempt to, um, that can open up a lot of doors. So, so even with John Lee Dumas, I said, you know, I know you have podcasters paradise. Tons of those people are coming out um, to podcast movement. What if we hosted a bar meetup? I'll pay the first thousand dollars in the tab. Um, and then we'll just co-host it. Uh, and he's like, that'd be awesome. So then right away, I'm now standing next to JLD at an event with a bunch of other podcasters. And he's going, Hey, Joe's picking up the tab here, go get a drink. And, you know, sending out Facebook things to them, sending out emails saying, Joe Sanok and I are hosting this. That makes me look different than just some random dude. That's like, hi, nice to meet you, John Lee Dumas. I've liked your show for a while. Like th that just like helps me level up in a way that says I'm going to play, I'm going to play big. Um, and then now we text each other, we connect, we, we do things together at, at conferences. And so I think it's important to just realize that sometimes that investment is just investing in somebody else and showing them that you're willing to play at a different level than the average person. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That's a great yeah. tip. Yeah, that is incredibly valuable. Man, I just got my brain going. Yeah. <laughs> like, dang it, Joe, we didn't buy a hundred of your books. Well, <laughs> you still can. <laughs> I know, right? Right? I well, and actually, actually, I don't know if, if you knew this, but um, so for every 10 that you buy, you get a ticket into the Thursday is the new Friday mastermind group that starts in November. And mm -hmm. so if you did buy a hundred, then you could give away eight tickets. The two of you could be in it to your like top level people. Um, and yeah, we're going to be doing a bunch of networking, talking about the book, um, and some hot seats. Um, it's going to be awesome. Um, uh, so you still can get your hundred books. <laughs> awesome, awesome plug. I, yeah, I'm actually really excited for that. 
So we have four questions that we like to end every podcast on, Joe. So we're going to transition into those. Um, what has been one book that has been super influential in your journey into the coach, the mastermind, consulting, and then just kind of leveling up from there? Yeah. So I already mentioned the one thing, so I won't say that again, but I would actually say the book, The Untethered Soul uh, by Michael Singer. Um, it's not a business book. It's a personal development book. Uh, the main idea is that at our deepest core, we're not our memories. We're not our experiences. We're not our physical body. Those things change over time, but it's the awareness of awareness. And the idea of when heavy things come in, letting them flow through you um, and really not attaching to what you hope the outcomes will be or avoiding the negativity that you want to avoid. Um, for me, it's just helped me be so much more grounded. And then I'm a better dad. Uh, I'm better at the work I do. Uh, absolutely. I'd say the untethered soul. That's great. The funny thing is one of my clients bought that for me and I need to go. <laughs> oh. I couldn't figure out the goddamn American uh, Amazon thing. <laughs> I left it. So well, if you, you can actually listen to it for free through uh, the app Hoopla. Um, that pairs usually to your public library account. So the yeah. Untethered Soul and he has a course that goes along that he usually charges for are both free through Hoopla through the public library. Cool. Cool. That's awesome. And so Joe, you know, with all the spare time you have, because you're ending on Thursdays and you've got super hard boundaries, what are some of the hobbies that you do? How do you keep yourself moving and being fulfilled? Yeah. I mean, from September 2020 until April 2021, uh, I lived in national parks with my daughters uh, in a camper. Uh, and so uh, we explored national parks and uh, went all over the place. Uh, so that was a really fun adventure for that period of time. Um, right now, uh, because it's such a media blitz, it's been you know Monday through Thursday from nine to three most days. Uh, I would say that the weekends, you know, it's, it's spending time with my girls. We play Mario Kart. We uh, go on adventures. I, I watercolor paint. Uh, I have an amazing group of friends. So oftentimes they're doing things locally. It's funny after taking such an epic road trip, my girls are like, we just want to sit at home. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> stand up paddle boarding. Uh, after, the, after this media blitz, I'm going to take some time off to just really let my brain rest um, and to kind of think and meditate on kind of what the next steps are. Is it continuing to go down the kind of four day work week path and maximizing that more? Is it something else? And just allowing myself to follow my own uh, kind of rhythm I talk about in the book. Both uh, Faisal and I have campers and we are, we both have an affinity to spending time with our, our families out. So that's awesome. That's awesome. What kind of campers do you have? Uh, Faisal had a drug written one. I don't know. Something out of Breaking Bad. broke into it. It's still with the insurance, but it's a motorhome. It's a Jayco Redhawk. Yeah, they broke in, squatted, like they thought oh there might gosh. be like drug, you know, aftermath. So like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like an incredible I'm story. I'm still dealing with the insurance for that. So I'm looking forward to April here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's killer. Yeah, yeah. And we just, we have a, a you know, bumper pull behind trailer. Um, sure. So we, of course we had to buy a new truck to pull the bigger camper and all of that. So, um, but our, it has it has four bunk beds in its own separate room you know, which, which was huge for us because yeah. you know, for my kids, we can close the door on them, you know, and yeah. like, okay, it's bedtime. And we close the door so that yeah. I can have some of that alone dull time. Uh, it's fantastic. <clears throat> so Joe, what do you see that separates a successful coach from a coach that fails, 
I'll put that in air quotes, <laughs> fails, um, somebody that gives up, uh, somebody that just or just never really gets any traction and then they just bow out. 100%, I would say having a very clear specialty. And so um, one thing I, I like talking about is um, the pain to transformation formula of really being able to say, here's the three big pains I see for you. Uh, and here's the transformation when you go through my program, my e-course coaching with me, uh, being able to have that pain to transformation formula very clear um, is what I see successful, not just coaches, but businesses too. I mean, I think about Jessica Tapana, um, you know, with Simplified SEO Consultants, uh, that came out of slowdown school and her just being good at SEO and sitting on the couch with people and helping them with their SEO. She's so focused on helping therapists with SEO because she's a therapist that loves SEO. Um, and so finding those very unique things of, you know, maybe you're a guy that got divorced and you're raising your kids on your own and you love stand up paddle boarding and you also are an online marketer. Okay. Focus on that particular audience. You know, if you're a happily married woman who also wants to start your first job and you did that help coach women that are going from being a stay at home mom to then starting their first business, the more focused you can be, the higher you can charge, but also then you're going to spend so much time learning about that particular specialty. You'll outpace everybody else. Oh, that's, that's great advice. Yeah. We spend a lot of time yeah. with our coaches, um, on their ideal avatar and really getting clear. So otherwise you're just, you're wasting a lot of energy trying to attract yeah. people that you really don't even know who you're attracting. And then you end up getting the people you're like, I don't even want to work with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about what the average coach needs in regards to actual like client hours, you're looking at like 20, maybe 30 people, unless you're doing a membership program or group coaching. So you can be as hyper-specific as you want and people are going to want to work with you if you are that hyper-specific. Because if you imagine you are a mom that is, has stayed home and you want to launch a business. Great. Are you going to work with someone who has done that? Say you're a Christian. Are you going to work with someone that's a Christian that's done that? Or are you going to just work with someone that's regular? What if that person also loves knitting and you love knitting? Like getting so specific to say, oh my gosh, where has this coach been my whole life? She's exactly me. <laughs> like you want them to say that. That's awesome. Uh, where do you feel like the field of coaching is headed? I think right now, what I've noticed after being at a number of podcasting conferences, um, the average coach has an uphill battle because there's so many self-proclaimed like coaches or self-proclaimed uh, experts. And I do experts in quotes um, just because they've had a couple of life experiences where they say, I'm now an expert in fill in the blank. Uh, I do think that the podcasting industry is moving towards having more licensed professionals speak out about things. So as a coach, the more that you can get, whether it's certifications or experiences or um, well-placed news articles, or just building that sense that you're not just some person that said, I'm an expert, work with me. No, like go do some work, show that you can help people implement things. Uh, that's, I think the, the place where most people get stuck is they think that being good at information is actually the thing that's going to sell people. We're past the information age. You can go on YouTube and learn anything. We are in the implementation age. People are paying to speed up. And so if you can cut through the noise and say, here's your goal, here's what you want to do. Here's my method. I'm going to help you get there faster than if you just went and Googled it. Moving from the information age to the implementation age to me is that big mindset for most coaches. Yeah. Oh, that's, that. that's, yeah. I haven't heard that term implementation age, but it makes perfect sense. I think I made it up, but it's also one of those things that I very well could have heard someone else say it and I just stole it and thought I made it up. 
I've been saying it for a couple of years, so I'm, I think I made it up. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're gonna have to come up with the date when you first said that, and then figure out who gets copyright. You know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so we have covered an amazing amount of ground today. I'm so excited. I'm good. Definitely, this is one of the episodes I'm gonna go back and, and re-listen to, and I'm gonna force my husband to listen to it as well. Um, hopefully, I won't have to force. I mean, hopefully, you'll be excited <laughs> about the content. Uh, but we have had conversations about our schedule and calendaring and just how do we do more with, with less time. <coughs> what do you want to make sure that our audience leaves this podcast knowing or thinking about or, or acting on? Yeah, we are the post-pandemic generation. Uh, we have a window of time right now uh, that we can reshape all of society and question the way that the industrialists handed us. And when I think about the next hundred years of challenges, uh, do we need people that are burned out, stressed out, uh, maxed out in every area like we were pre-pandemic? Or do we need to have people that are the most creative, the most energetic, the most thoughtful, the most caring is that what we need in the next hundred years of challenges that we have no idea what they're going to be? And to me, moving towards that four-day work week is that next step in the evolution of humanity and the evolution of business for us to address the next hundred years of challenges. I hope a hundred years from now, they look back and say, wow, I can't believe they ever worked 40 hours a week and the four-day work week doesn't work for us anymore. We need to reshape it again. Uh, great. But right now, our next step as a generation is to move to the four-day work week so that we can address those challenges of the next hundred years. Yeah. So Joe, where can people buy their 10 copies so they get that free mastermind ticket? Yeah. Where, where else can they find you? Yeah, you can buy it anywhere you want. Uh, you can go to your local bookstore, you can go to Amazon, you can get it through Audible. Um, it's all over the place. Uh, so wherever you buy it, and then just go to thursdayisthenewfriday.com and fill out the receipt order there. It's just going to ask you for your receipt, where you bought it. Uh, that you, Did you get 10 books? Did you get more? Because we have some other bonuses if you get more than 10 books. Uh, and then you'll automatically get added to that email list for the Thursday is the New Friday Mastermind. It starts the first Thursday in November, 2021. It's going to be six sessions that we have. We're skipping Thanksgiving, so it's over seven weeks. It's going to be at noon Eastern every Thursday for an hour. So it's going to be an awesome group. We're having tons of podcasters and influencers and coaches that have already joined. So uh, it's awesome to know that your audience is going to be joining too. Fantastic. I cannot thank you enough for your time and the fact that we were able to get this all coordinated like the day after is amazing. Uh, so thank you so much for imparting all your wisdom, the learning, your own experiences, you know, the, 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 the challenges you've had and how you figured out to overcome, because I know that all of this is going to be hugely inspirational to, to our audience and to anybody that listens to this in the future. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Coach's Journey Podcast. 